This is the 48th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt. With me are my fantastic co-hosts Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström. All of us are very happy to have you here, dearest listeners. Hello, hi, how do you do? Hello everybody, I hope you're doing well. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on the Top Decked app. In this week's episode, we will report from the weekly Legacy League play at our local game store. And after that, we will shame Christopher for missing a bird that has now spiked heavily in popularity. Then we shall return to everyone's favorite segment, the Basic Land Connoisseur panel. This time, the panel will talk about Jeskai undoing Basic Lands. Before we hit it off though, a short housekeeping note. I, Victor, who is the also editor of this here podcast, am currently in the process of moving and that takes a lot of my time. Episodes will therefore likely be produced with some irregularity in the coming weeks. But rest assured that we are as eager as always to get our Paper Legacy content out to you. So, Paper Legacy... Robin, how was last week at the Paper Legacy League in Stockholm? Yay, Paper Legacy. Well, I got to sleeve up the 8th cast after playing the Mulches for two consecutive weeks. And, uh, like, I really like 8th cast. It's it's such an aggressive, proactive deck. Like, when you don't know how the meta's gonna be, as we talked a little bit about last week with Albert... It's really good to have a proactive deck that just want to kill the opponent. And 8-cost, it's exactly that. So I started off playing against Death and Taxes. And we had three quite intense games, which actually came down into turns. And on the final turn, I needed to top deck an artifact. Which is, it's not really hard in this deck, to be honest. To make my Kappa Cannoneer unblockable for lethal. Which I did. So I got that against DNT. Clutch. Yeah, yeah. Then I faced off against elves. And, uh, well, I can't beat elves <laughs> with this deck. So I, I I lost two rather quick games, actually. And I think I need to do something, like, something very different if I want to have a chance in this matchup. It's just such a tricky matchup. It is. Like, the counter spells doesn't do anything. They are a little bit faster than you. And, uh, like, just the dinosaur's plan is also so strong. So it, it doesn't even do it with, like, a graph digger's cage. As in game two, I lost against dinosaurs. Can you find an alternate win route by playing, you know, artifact stuff like ensnaring bridge? Just draw cards and win with, uh, what's that, ether grid thing? Just ping your opponent to death? From behind uh, a bridge? Well, if I play Edergrid, I just sweep that matchup, I think. Because I just ping all the guys. <laughs> no, sure, of course. You don't need the fucking bridge. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah play Edergrid. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's one solution, but it, it's another color. I mean, I think maybe a bridge could actually do it because you could just assemble a lot of thopters and then strike for one in the air. Yeah. Could also be pretty decent against uh, things like uh, depths and lands. If you get there. But, you know, Besedju is scary too. So you have to keep an eye open for that. Yeah. And like Elves is playing Besedju and boarding in Force Vigor against me. Yeah, of course. In game two, he he nailed two really big uh, constructs with the Force Vigor. So I, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the thought process of uh, returning to playing Engineer Explosives, which is a sweeper for 
one mana dudes. It's quite decent against Delver as well. And uh, another thought, I'm not sure if it's a good thought, but that is to play like Walking Ballista in the board. I do like the uh, the explosives idea because uh, you know you can play it for one through your chalice quite easily uh, yep. by just you know tapping an ancient tomb or something with a blue also or you know just paying the double blue yeah and i'm not really sure but i think like if they cast a if they have a shepherd in play and you have chalice and they play a one mana spell i think you can blow it up and still have the spell countered right yes absolutely yeah, that's pretty good too so like there are there are some scenarios where if they see an explosives in play they're not gonna want to run into that situation and i think that's pretty powerful because your chalice is really good if they can't get the shepherd to stick and you have emery so you can recur the the ee so that sounds pretty nice yeah i i, I that's that's like the best idea i have for now and like that card has Shepherd written on it, so I only blow it with a Shepherd in play. Otherwise, it's just I don't care about the the mana dorks. No, of course. And this sort of this seems like a relevant thing to sort of delve into. No pun intended, because I mean a lot of people in the paper legacy scene in Sweden do like to play elves. So if you want to play eight cost, you need to have some actual things to do about that. And then it was the dreaded 8-cost mirror. Ooh, ooh, that's nasty. That's nasty. And uh, <laughs> it was not a lot of uh, turn uh, turn 1 chalice on 0, which I sort of expected us to be like really, really mean to each other. It was quite fair magic. Yeah, this this was uh, me versus Robin, by the <laughs> way. So we were we were the 8-cast players in the room, and we played the mirror. <laughs> yeah, but... Hercules Recall, go. Yeah, I, I think none of us had 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 any real haymakers in the matchup, and we when we compared boarding plans, we we boarded quite similarly. At a hull breacher, which was which is a little bit like it can be good stopping your draw draw engines, but uh, yeah, I think the biggest haymaker was uh, you had turn one Emery, both game one and three, and I think that won you the game pretty much because it's it's so hard to fight against uh, an early card advantage yeah. engine like that but our game free was legendary it was <laughs> insanely fun we can we, should we get into it like g- game one and two like it was pretty much who whoever was on the play one yeah but our game free was extremely nasty because i was a bit stuck on mana and you presented some really big constructs quick with shadow spear but i managed to get emery and other spell bomb into play so i managed to get rid of your threats but you also managed to like do some nasty things to me and i was at one life so my ancient tomb was turned off and you know it was all sorts of nasties and i can i think you needed a haymaker spell because you had zero man artifacts and you played a chalice on zero right yeah so then you finally drew the uh, the sigh and just played three artifacts to make three one ones and i was like oh and yeah. i'm at one <laughs> so that was pretty rough but it was extremely tight games yeah, it was super cool because I was so ahead and then you just turned it around with that spell bomb that just like got rid of all my all my big constructs. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, I thought I was uh, a lot more dead than I was. But, uh, you know, 
sometimes this deck go wide and sometimes it goes tall and you went tall and i had the exact yeah. answer for that that was really so cool. That was cool and uh, and and also like the power of emery in that occasion like if it was just like one spell bomb doesn't do it but like a spell bomb each turn or a draw engine if you need that is that's really strong yeah for sure and then in the final game, I faced off against D&T again and uh, succeeded to, to beat it 2-1. Two, two so I went 3-1 for the third week in a row. Yeah, you're pretty consistent on that. Mr. Consistent. Yeah, feeling good with those like proactive, quite aggressive decks. I will continue playing them. And keeping sort of a 3-1 record uh, Thursday after Thursday, you're going to end up in the, in the playoffs for sure. Yeah, I hope so. So... Uh, what about your evening, Christopher? Yeah, I, I got the reversed uh, Robin result. But uh, I, I was also playing 8-cast, and my list was very close to Robin's um, Gothcon list. I took some inspiration. I, I think I changed some cards. I don't have, like, Metallic Rebuke and stuff like that. So I just put in Fluster Storms and uh, stuff like that. So in round one, I played against TES. And uh, this is this is funny. Like it's a it's a listener to the podcast, and we talk a lot. And we were talking about good ways to keep track of storm and stuff like that. And uh, I was talking about a token that I use uh, that I used to use when I played A and T. And he was like, "Oh, I'm thinking about this." And he sent a picture of uh, abacus. And uh, then we started game one, and he brought his abacus up. And I was like, oh, he's on TES. <laughs> we, 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 need, we need to explain to the listeners what an abacus is. Yeah. So, you know, when you are a toddler and you're learning how to count. Now, this is, this is not really it. It's, it was used for maths back in the day. And you can do some really advanced things with it, I guess. Like, uh, I don't know. I ha- I, I've, I've always used a calculator. <laughs> but it's a very analog and nice way to keep track of counts of different things. So I thought it was a really nice touch for TS storm count. Yeah, and he had, had like altered it with uh, different colors to represent storm count and the different mana. Yeah, yeah, yeah for cool. sure. And the colors that are relevant. So it was super cool. But I, I instantly knew what I was up against. And I'm sitting here on the Force of Will Chalice deck. Mm. And uh, like long story short, game one, he goes, Bloodstained Mire, pass. And I'm looking at my hand and I have two chalices, Ancient Tomb, Force of Will, blue card. Okay. So I just go, okay, chalice for one. He cracks the fetch and brainstorms and then it resolves. And then I play chalice for zero and he scoops. So it was a turn one kill. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Skills to pay the bills. Yeah, like in, in game two, he went like uh, turn one, Chromox, land, Wishclaw. And I have a double force hand. And, and not too many, like not too much action. So I just decide to force it. And then I go Ursa Saga pass. He goes like land, some cantrip maybe, can't remember, but passes back. And I play, play my ancient tomb. And uh, he takes his turn. He does, he just uh, plays a wish claw and passes. And I make a construct. And then upkeep, I make a second construct. And then I go get my piffing needle for that wish claw. <laughs> and uh, I think I just play two more artifacts out and uh, beat him to death in two turns. Constructs are good. That'll do it. Yeah, the constructs are crazy good. Like, they do so much damage. Uh, but from here, my my tournament goes downhill. 
I get paired against The Hope, and uh, he's on uh, Lance, and uh, I just I get demolished in two games. Like just just to give you a summary of how the games felt like, I keep a mana shaky hand game one. I have two seat of the Synod and Ancient Tomb, and his first turn is literally just wasteland go, and he's on the play, and I'm like, oh shit. So I squeeze my chalice in there, get wastelanded, and uh, when I eventually, you know, get a sigh into play, he decides uh, to just play a tabernacle, go. And I'm like so constrained on mana the whole game, and it's brutal. And game two was pretty similar. <laughs> it, just, it was just terrible. And uh, then, as you heard, I played Robin, uh, really fun games. And my last round of the evening was, was against Grixis Control, and... Uh, I don't know, I, I mulled so hard, and I got mana stabbed both games. I, I actually got mana screwed out of both of our games. So that was that was a bit, you know, it happens uh, with 16 lands, and maybe I need to uh, learn how to mulligan better. But I think I mulled to five, four times this evening. So I, I wasn't having a, an eight-cast evening. Not in the flow. Yeah, you know, going home, I was like... Not really feeling after eight chocolates right now, <laughs> after eight cast chocolates. So I was just, you know, like, oh man, this sucked. But, you know, I still had really fun games. And I think this deck really got a lot more fun with Kappa Cannoneer in it. Because uh, now your go tall plan can get super mean yeah. and unavoidable. And I, I think that's that's a nice touch, and it's terrifying to play against. So yeah, those were my my games. But sort of, if you look at the last game, um, if you hadn't Mulligan, because I'm having a sort of slight feeling that the Grixis control deck is sort of kind of making a comeback. People who played it when it was really good really loved to play it. So as two eight-cost players for this evening, what would you say about the Grixis control matchup in general? Because, I mean, in my mind, there's just so many things that can happen in Grixis that will thwart an artifact. Yeah, yeah for sure. Especially with uh, Hiretsugu. Um, you yeah. know, a lot of the times you used to lean into things like uh, Chalice against them until they got to free mana. So they could call against command it and, I don't know, make you discard or sh- shoot two at something. But Hiretsugu hits so much more things like your construct tokens it hits your shadow spear your retrofitter which is also a really annoying card against control and it just comes in there and sweeps and for for your kappa cannoneers um i know my list my latest grixis list actually plays free sudden edict so that i can get rid of all of the small things and then just edict the big things like Merktides or Kappas or Marit. Sounds good. So yeah, I, I, I actually think that Grixis is quite good against 8-cast. And they also have like a lot of red blasts. So if they manage to get that chalice out of there with their Hidetsugu, eh, you're in for a lot of trouble with all of the red blast unlocked and stuff like that. So it's I think it's, it's a pretty hard matchup, but it's not impossible. We did play a a third game for fun and uh, I, I played a control role as uh, the uh, eight cast player because I boarded in force of negation and fluster storms and whenever when I finally made him tap out for uh, Hiretsugu I could fight over it and then untap and jam winter orb when he was tapped <laughs> out with two constructs into play 
which is just game That's over. That's glorious. Yeah, so it's it's super interesting. But I, I, when I play Grixis, if I play against 8cast, I'm feeling favored. Not by a lot, because 8cast can still do extremely nasty things, but I would probably think that I'm favored. Yeah, I agree. And uh, from the 8cast perspective, the counter magic is super important there. I think you need to board in a lot of counter magic to to really fight against Hidetsugu. And, and as you say... Like the winter orbs is really good there because you can fight over one spell and then catch them in a in a in a tapped out moment and then you buy a lot of turns with with a great beatdown plan. I mean that's what uh, like what I did during the the Gothcon when I faced <laughs> all, all those consecutive control decks. That was a lot of uh, chalice and into winter orb doing stuff. My takeaway from this discussion here is also that this here podcast, we have two favorite cards in Magic Gathering, and those are Grist, the Hunger Tide, and Winter Orb, and I think that says a lot about us. Speaking of this podcast, two episodes ago, we did a review of Streets of New Capella, the new Magic the Gathering set out now in a store near you. And we talked a bit about a bird that no one else has mentioned, Nimble Narcissist. And incidentally, we are still waiting for any English teachers to explain the world play there on that card. But we totally missed out on the other bird that's so much discussed on every other legacy podcast right now, the Ledger Shredder. And this card is one of the blue for a bird advisor flying. Whenever a player casts their second spell each turn, Ledger Shredder connives. And that's draw a card and discard a card if you discard a non-land card put a plus one plus one counter on this creature so christopher you are our resident bird watcher what the fuck is up with you missing a bird so first of all i need to apologize to all of our listeners i totally missed a bird that's uh, definitely the word you know i pride myself with being a bird aficionado and an advisor tribal lover as well with Leovold and Recruiter of the Guard and stuff like that. And I totally missed the bird advisor, so I'm not so sure about my status as a bird slash advisor lover. But this card is so sweet, and I, I, I'm not sure how we missed it either. When I saw it the first time, it was on Twitter, and, and people were, you know, freaking out, like, is this good enough for modern and legacy and then i saw a screenshot from vintage where it got forced to will over like an ancestral recall and stuff like that it's just we live in what in a wild time so so this card is is so sick whenever a player you know cast their second spell each turn so it checks both players ledger shredder combives which is you draw a card and then discard a card and if you discard a non-land card you put a plus one plus one counter on it it gets out of bolt raid range lightning fast <laughs> but you know uh, <laughs> victor is just shaking his head he's uh he's clutching his fist real bad right now but i think i think this card is just uh super cool and especially for you know some of the flex slots in uh, perhaps delver or in more mid-range decks i just i just see a lot of opportunity for this card a lot of times with with Delver, you need to find the right spell for the situation, which is usually where the cantrips come in. But you getting to uh, like uh, 
convive if that's the if that's the singular for it or maybe convives is just a i'm i'm no english major so i'm gonna leave this out to our english listeners but you know whenever you need to dig for the right thing if you're playing against eight cast every time they double spell you're gonna have to get another look towards meltdown whenever you play like expressive iteration your second spell whether it be a bauble a delver or whatever is gonna loot and uh, yeah like no shock here together with murktide this can be pretty nasty and also just the drc to fuel the graveyard as well i think this is a i think it's it's a real card for sure so what do you guys think I can start off. I mean, I I I really think that this sort of effect of uh, you know drawing a card and uh, discarding a card, like the looting effect, it it's so strong. Like if you compare it to like Dragon's Rage Channeler, which I mean looks at the top card and and maybe puts it in the graveyard. This got gets rid of the worst card in your hand each turn instead of just like. I mean, when I've been playing Delver, I've been putting Murtides from the bot from the top of the library to the bot to like the graveyard, and like that, I would like to draw this card. But like the effect of putting something in the graveyard is also very strong, and, and so this is much easier to always just like draw a card and then. I mean, this means that you also can play a little bit more situational cards in Delver. For instance, when you play in paper, you don't really want the the red blast because you will face off against non-blue decks a lot more. But if you have a couple of these guys, then maybe the red blasts are not such a big problem anymore because you can just like ditch them to to the ledger shredder. So I think it's uh, it definitely will make a splash there and I'm also interested to see how it can fare in other like mid-range decks that are missing a good two drop like you have Strixes and Ice Fangs Quattles but maybe you want something different that is a little bit of a beater that is also providing value I think uh, a lot of mid-range decks or control decks have like this duality in their deck where they have like a lot of swords to plowshares and that kind of cards which is really bad against uh, a certain portion of the meta so you just want to throw them in the bin and uh, and draw your force wheels, for instance. So I think there's uh, there's some interesting usage of these cards also in other archetypes. Yeah, for sure. And like, if you look at uh, some of those decks that might benefit from this, looking at those big Bant decks, uh, you know, the Yurion Bant uh, lists, or like some decks that I usually play, um, like Alurn or Food Chain, you also get to just put Uro in the graveyard and uh, draw a card while doing it and you don't even need your grist reps to make that happen you just need to have your uro in hand so it's i think that's uh, pretty cool too and i think since legacy is you know a lot of people talk about you getting to a stage in the game where you can uh, you know double spell each turn this is just like the double spell creature i think it's a it's really cool for that, and I've heard I've heard some people talk about how this makes uh, Mishra's Bobble also really good because you can curve this out turn two and just play a Bobble to get that loot in and mm. grow it. So I think uh, there's some really cool ways that this card can play out. And for the love of God, if you play against this card, don't ponder for a bolt and try and bolt it the same turn. Like it's it's not gonna play out the way you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean at first. Looking at this card, 
you're sort of like, and I guess that's why so many of us, I mean, all of us really missed it until someone figured out and everyone now is just retracing. Oh, we forgot to talk about this excellent card. It's the fact that sort of on the surface, it seems to, you know, die so easily. But I guess that one thing is that much of the removal that it has uh, is a target for is used to remove other things in the decks where it's played. Like there's simply too many things to to remove that are sort of because this is a, a must remove, but it's not the only must remove in the decks where it goes. So it's interesting how how a blue creature with flying turns out to be way more deeper than you than you would think at first. Hasn't happened at all uh, <laughs> before, you know. No, no other creatures uh, in the last couple of years uh, that fits that bill. It's uh, really strange. For sure. Like, uh, what is this? The uh, deferred blue creature in a very short time span that's been a real banger in Legacy. Um, we have Merktide, mm. Cap, and this. Yep. Yep. Do we see a pattern here? They're all kind of aggressive, right? Like, yeah, sure, this is a one free, but is it really? Like, it's going to find you that Merktide, it's going to find you iteration, it's going to do yep. all of the nasty things. So, yeah, what's up, wizards? We see you. Here to stay. Blue cards. My wizard friends, it's time for us to pull up the hoods of our ceremonial robes and gather round the magic terraforming contraptions for yet another basic land connoisseur panel. This time we will enter the infinitarium and discuss which basics best fit the Jeskai undoing deck. Master Robin, what do you have for us? Well, Master Victor, I have been pondering... Uh, how to how to how to pick these these lands for this contraption that is the fish door deck? I mean, it, it's funny because uh, as you will see, when Christopher make his, <laughs> I was really thinking about the like how this is the like the the war of spark tribal deck. <laughs> yeah, this is same wavelength. But uh, actually, like the card that really stands out in in this deck is of course days and doing. Since, uh, like, uh, playing uh, Teferi, playing Narset, like, uh, all of the mid-range decks do that in some capacity. But only only one deck go all in on, like, the anti-draw card, like, the anti-draw permanence, and then couple it with the Time Twister. So, I started with the Days Undoing, and uh, I was looking at that particular set, where it came from, didn't really feel... For those cards, then I looked into the painter uh, for the art, and uh, it, it's uh, it's an artist that I haven't really seen a lot of, but uh, I think that the art is really cool, actually. Uh, that this weird door in in some like in in the middle of nowhere. So I looked up which kind of basic lands he had uh, painted, and I I found a whole set from Dominaria. So uh, all of my basics here are from Dominaria. So uh, to begin with, we have a Plains. It's 250 from Dominaria. And uh, it's um, 
it's quite a bright picture with this like green grass, a little bit of flowers in the in the foreground, and then there's this uh, mountain in the background, and it has some. Maybe it's a river or something like that that floats through it, which sort of uh, has uh, like a geometry in the picture that resembles of the other basic lands that I've picked. So the island, uh, which is number 254, is a shoreline where you can see the sea and a couple of like uh, rocks in the in the sea. And then there's like this big fantasy castle in, in the background. And then there's like even more in the background, some sort of weird structure. I don't really know what it is. Maybe uh, some fantasy <laughs> mountain in the background. I'm not sure. I don't know the Dominaria lore if this is some something that I should know about. It kind of looks a bit like Tolaria West, like at least the style of the building. Uh, I think it's mm. a bit bigger maybe, but feels samey as i said i'm not really sure about the dominaire lore if this is like a place that is well known but like the like the fantasy castle is really nice and uh, yeah i I like this uh, art direction for uh, for an island and then uh, for the final land we have a mountain which is uh, very orangey yellowy like an autumn landscape with the mountains actually in the background and then there's this uh, path leading forward towards the the mountain and uh, like that path has a little bit of a similarity with the plains with the river and like the some of the shapes in the island so i think they form quite a nice trio and uh, they're very colorful all of them and uh, yeah beautiful art so the artist uh, for all of these three basic lands is jonas derow and uh, real real good basic land in my opinion what do you think about them? Yeah, I really like these, especially the mountain. I think the mountain is fucking gorgeous and has that, as you mentioned, in the forefront, which is sort of the bottom half geometrically, sort of the bottom half of the actual art uh, is this this autumny red-orange fields with bushes sort of suggestive in the foreground and this path leading towards this huge mountain ridge which is light blue, almost gray, and is drawn in a way that it seems to be super far away. And then you get the sense that if these are far away, these mountains are fucking big. And um, I love the composition here. And I love, as you alluded to, the idea of drawing a mountain where a big fuck-off mountain is not sort of the centerpiece of the art. Like, this is a mountain range in the background, and you're walking towards it, and the foreground tells its story on its own i think this is a beautiful land yeah i i really like this and i think uh, the all of the landscapes are just so beautiful in these like my my two favorite picks from this is the plains and the mountain and they all look like really nice places to just stop and take a break maybe set up camp and just chill a bit kind of like when when days undoing resolves you just end the turn and (laughs) yeah this is kind of like a good place to rest all of them and uh, they all make me feel really calm like the water on the island a lot of islands have this like violent waves or extreme you know stillness to them it's never in between i feel like and this is the in-between it's you can you can if you close your eyes 
you can hear the waves and they're not being in your face. But I agree, like the mountain is super gorgeous and the path looks so inviting and uh, it looks uh, like just a really nice place to walk. And maybe, you know, the mountain might be far off, but, uh, you know, the destination is not always the, what's it say, the goal. Maybe the journey is, is important. And this is a really nice picture. I like that. Cool. So, Christopher, what have you got for us? So we were kind of on the same train. <laughs> I did pick Free Basics from World of Spark by Richard Wright. And the uh, reason why I picked these is because two of the absolute most haymaker cards in the Jeskai Undoing deck is Teferi and Narset. And if I would categorize those two cards as something, it's the Sumer control cards. And for me, Jessica Undoing, Undoing is like the ultimate Sumer deck. So it's, uh, yeah, Shots like... Shots uh, fired. No, no shade. Like, uh, I love Sumer innovation, but it's just mean. So I, play, I picked all of them, which has sparks in them. And these are version 252, the planes. Version 254, the island. And version 261, the mountain. The reason why I picked these are, like these sparks are kind of soothing. They It looks like they go in a kind of calm pace. And it's very blue. Like these sparks are extremely blue, like legacy should be. I just, uh, I don't know. Maybe this is all of your opponent's cards leaving their hands when you get to resolve your combo or it's just you know a very like the beginning of the end for something uh, which i think war of the spark was for a big chunk of uh, what the legacy metagame used to be so these are all the cards maybe the souls of all the cards that became unplayable when (laughs) when this set was released you can say that they were undone yeah (laughs) they were undone (laughs) dams undoing (laughs) but i i think that uh, if you're playing this deck you can pretty much run whatever basics you like but you're definitely gonna have some flavor win for me if you run the Teferi Narset with these bad boys. So what do you guys think? I really like your reasoning here. And uh, I was looking at War of the Spark as well. Because to me this is like the, the deck that mostly utilizes this broken planeswalker. With uh, you know a permanent uh, yeah, state state effect. The passive. Like for, for a lot of those planeswalkers, it's just a passive ability. But with Teferi and Narset, it's like a passive aggressive ability. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. And, and, and they are like pre- preventing your opponent from playing magic, especially if they are a blue mage. So they are so un- anti-blue. And like, I mean, these, the actual art on these lands is not really my style. They don't speak to me. But like, I can totally dig... Like, here's my War of the Spark island, my War of the Spark <laughs> planes, and here's my War of the Spark Teferi. Like, no counterspells for you. I can totally <laughs> dig that playstyle. Yeah. 
Maybe it's like uh, the legacy you loved is broken and uh, Ravnica is broken. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a huge love for, for the art direction either. But I think it's just because in, in War of the Spark, I mean, I'm not uh, so much of a hater of War of the Spark. I, I enjoy a lot of the innovation that came from War of the Spark, actually. But I think I have less nostalgia for pre-War of the Spark legacy, even though I played Legacy for a long time before War of the Spark. So my sort of um, dissonance here is more in that with War of the Spark, Ravnica was art directed into becoming sort of Coruscant instead of being its own independent city structure and Coruscant being the, the Star Wars city planet. I think it's just... it. There is something about the way that Ravnica is pictured uh, in World of Spark that makes it look less less Ravnica and more something else. And I mean, this art is technically really well executed. It's just that it's just these large sort of overviews of the Ravnica city, and it's Ravnica that I don't really enjoy looking at. I have I have one quick follow up question to one thing you said when you said that um, that it uh, introduced very interesting things. Were you thinking about Karn, Teferi, Dreadhorn, Arcanist, and uh, all of that madness? Or were you just going with the unplayables? No, I'm of course thinking of uh, Ugin the Ineffable. Oh yeah, yeah. There definitely are some bangers, like Blast Zone is a great card from this set. Like, I love yeah, that. Yeah. No, I mean, I have love for Karn uh, as a strategy in Legacy. I think that's fun. I think Teferi for three mana is... Uh, an interesting card in Legacy. You heard it here. Yeah, you know, I I don't play these cards, but you know, uh, I like them. Yeah, your decks beat up on these cards. <laughs> like nice Teferi, and then you just that's not true. I, I play a Karn when I play my Nickfit deck because I like to play Karn in, in a shell that sort of balances <laughs> <laughs> the power level <laughs> of this planeswalker. I'm fair that way. So, uh, are you gonna let us know what your picks are, Victor? Yes, I went uh, on a very different route uh, compared to you guys. I went for the Ukiyo-e planes from uh, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. And I'm probably butchering the Ukiyo-e. I don't know what that sort of stands for. But it's uh, these are the, the super-duper-duper Japanese art style basic lands. And we mentioned them before uh, in this segment, uh, specifically asked by a listener if these would fit Blue Black Ninjas. And I think that these really, really fit Jeskai Undoing deck because to me, Days Undoing is sort of, it's a multiverse kind of spell. You go into this infinite pandemonium of, of everything. And these three land art pieces I think to me speaks of sort of you visit these three very different worlds. I mean, the first, the planes, I chose number 293. Uh, the artist, at least in sort of Western letters, is Amai Agido. Amai Agido, it's probably pronounced differently in actual Japanese, but it's a very calm sort of um, Japanese uh, rice fields. But a huge portion of this full art land is taken up by the sky, which is uh, a plains plains star connected sun or it's a sun that looks like a plains star if, if you if you follow me and it's sort of there's these blossom leaves flying in the wind and you have a sense that you're sort of with uh, the undoing 
context you're flying through this landscape and then you fly to the ukiyo-e island 296 by ide michael where you're in the air with these origami birds and these flying buildings and it seems that this is just going super fast you're on sort of some kind of air version of a big stream in a big ocean it's just this, but you're doing it in the air, and you have these arcane circles at the bottom of this picture that sort of makes you think that you are indeed traversing planes in this in this picture. And then you get to the to the mountain where it's number two ninety nine by Ayami Nakashima, and it's a Fuji style Japanese mountains, but there's several of them, so they they form this uh, mountain range clouds in between these tops and. Uh, a huge dragon in in the distance and you're also sort of in your traversing the, the planes being undone and done again by drawing these seven new cards you also fly through this space i was really inspired by by, uh, by days i'm doing to find land art that sort of took you on a journey and i think that these i haven't looked at these before sort of uh, i've looked at them of course i haven't seen that these lands would fit a deck they're beautiful but sort of they're a bit too beautiful but now i think i know this is where i want them what do you think well when these lands were spoiled i was not really feeling them but uh, they have actually grown on me and uh, when you are like painting this picture and uh, like presenting them in in this sort of context where where it's it's like what you are swooshing by as you are being undone of your days i I really like this uh, story and i and uh, like they are really beautiful and uh, i especially like the mountain actually it's my favorite among the three i wonder what those like sort of fireballs or fireflies or like sparks or what it is in the foreground is do you have any idea about that? It's a it's a good question. It could just be embers, but they do look kind of alive. So it's a, maybe some mystical thing happening, especially since there's a dragon in the background, you know. The magic door is open for that. But I, I definitely like your reasoning with this, Victor, and I think that you're telling a story with the different doors you can open with the multiverse. And I really love the Plains one, and my reason for that is, for me, the most iconic white card is Swords to Plowshares, uh, where you go from being a soldier to being a farmer. And, you know, this is where I would like to be exiled <laughs> to work as a farmer. Yeah. And it's just gorgeous, like with the cherry blossom petals and the very organized fields of maybe rice or something it's extremely beautiful and i also like that it is it is very you know cartoony kind of like what i imagine some traditional japanese art looking like but then still like the the sun is just extremely symmetrical in a very pleasant way and it it's kind of like yeah mesmerizing i really like the planes one and it it uh, makes swords to plowshares work really nice with it it's good picks and that is all we have for this week we hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we have enjoyed recording it as always 
If you like the show, tell a friend you think should listen as well. If you have other suggestions for basic lands for Jeskai Undoing, you are very welcome to join our Discord server. Post them there. You can find the link in this episode description. In addition to the Discord, you can hit us up on Twitter at STHLMLegacy, Stockholm Legacy. We are also present personally on some social media platforms. Robin, where can our listeners find you? I'm best found at the Discord server. And you'll find me there as well, or at uh, monolithmtg on Twitter. And you can hit me up on Twitter at Disco Drogo. And that is the end of the 48th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report. Thank you, Robinson. Thank you, Stoffer Wikström. Warm thanks to you for listening. The great Frönes has, as always, written our music. You can find their work on Spotify. Until next time... Consider that good blue cards now include a turtle and a shredder.